Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring Dan Harris, the former Member of Parliament for Scarborough Southwest. I want to thank you so much, Dan, for doing this. Uh, uh, to my... Uh, uh, listeners, we have the former MP for Scarborough Southwest, Mr. Dan Harris, on the show today. Uh, Dan, I ask my guests the exact same question every single time to any former politician. Where did your sense of duty come from? Uh, I kind I grew up with it. Uh, my father has always been involved in uh, the NDP. He's always been involved in his union, and uh, I mean, I grew up going to rallies and uh, you know hearing people speak and going to protests and marches and uh, you know I can remember going to anti-nuclear rallies at Queen's Park in the 80s and anti-apartheid events and you know the first time Nelson Mandela after he was freed from jail uh, when he came to Ontario and you know we saw him speak uh, you know to big huge rallies back when they used to happen at Maple Leaf Gardens and used to fill it up with labor and uh you know, progressives in the political parties. And, uh, you know, I could remember as a small child falling asleep in the seats at Maple Leaf Gardens during those. Um, so it, it's really been a part of life uh, since the very beginning. Uh, and I mean, my grandfather was uh, even more to the left of us. Uh, and he was uh, on the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Canada for over 30 years and secretary treasurer of his union for a really long time. Uh, so, I mean, my dad grew up with it and then I grew up with it and it Felt, it's felt very natural since the beginning, and I joined the NDP when I was 15. It was the day after my Karis was elected in Ontario, and I went, kind of went, holy crap, I got to stand up and do something about that. Of course, so, my Karis is still biting us in the butt right now with long-term care in Ontario. I, I, I don't think that guy will ever go away. He just seems to <laughs> pop up every two or three years. Uh, I keep on watching Ontario news, and it just keeps he keeps on popping up for no apparent reason. It's just like, okay, how did you get there? Uh, my my line in the 90s was, hi, I'm Dan. I hate my last name, Harris. <laughs> uh, we've been trying to take it back since then. Uh, and my dad used to walk around with his Harris's against my Harris button. Hey, that's all that matters. So the question that has to be asked then, what does the NDP mean to you? What does the NDP stand for? For someone who has uh, been so uh, uh, in tune with the NDP since a young age, why keep with it? What did the NDP mean to you? It, it, it kind of, it, for me, it means the, the never ending struggle for equality and justice in our society uh, that, you know, everybody is valuable and everyone should have a, a piece of the pie and everybody should have a roof over their heads and food in their belly uh, and a chance at a better life. That's really, I think what everybody wants for their own families. And I want it for everyone's family. Did politics come easy to you like was it something uh because you were so uh like your father was involved with it your grandfather was involved with it was it something that you wanted to do when you were older or like most children like myself what my father did i didn't care i want to do my own thing <laughs> uh well that's the funny thing is i found a way to do my own thing and still do that uh, I mean, I ran for class president uh, in elementary school a few times and was class president and did stuff like that. 
and I got involved in the Ontario New Democratic Youth uh, right from the time I joined the party. Uh, but at the time, you know, my dad always stayed involved in the Scarborough Southwest riding where he grew up. At the time, we were living in what was originally the York East riding uh, that then got merged into Beaches East York. Uh, so what I said was, I'm going to be involved, but where we actually live. Uh, so I first got involved in that riding association and, you know, they were small and fun and I, I met a lot of great people. And uh, what age that was, was this for you? Uh, that was in 95 and 96. So at 15 okay. and 16. Uh, and I went to my first uh, NDP convention, the provincial in 96. Uh, that was the leadership convention uh, Howard where Howard Hampton, Hampton was uh, elected leader. Uh, I was supporting Peter Cormos in that campaign. Uh, one of two people in the beaches, uh, East York and York East riding uh, that were, because of course, beaches at that point was Francis Lincoln. Uh, so we were certainly in that territory. Uh, and uh, I mean, you know, it was a very contentious uh, delegated convention. And I mean, that was really the last uh, delegated leadership convention the NDP had. Uh, because, uh, you know, in 95 was when we elected Alexa McDonough as the federal leader. Uh, so 96 was Howard Hampton. And by the time Jack, Jack Layton was elected as leader and Andrew Horvath took over for Howard, at that point, we were one member, one vote. Uh, so I got to have that experience. And it's very different from uh, the kind of conventions we have now for leadership. Uh 1995, you, you are involved in politics. Uh, how old are you at this time? You're what? I would say. Uh, I am 41. I, I am uh, in August. I'll be hitting the meaning of life. Okay. So, so you were about 15 <laughs> at this time. You, yeah. you run uh, school wide. Did you have federal or provincial aspirations or was it a pipe dream for you saying, ah, you know what, if I could, I would, but I'm never going to be that guy who people come to and say, we need you to be that candidate. Early on, I was honestly uh, far more provincial because, again, the battle was against Mike Harris at that time. So yeah. the focus was very, very provincially minded. Uh, but also for the NDP, the, the federal and provincial scenes were very different back then. Um, when uh, Kretchen brought in uh, the changes to election laws uh, and uh, to contributions and limiting union and corporate contributions, of course, uh, things changed federally quite a bit. Back then, the NDP federally was a much smaller organization. It relied on the provincial parties to run the campaigns in those areas uh, because, of course, the NDP is the only party that the provincial sections and federal section are actually aligned uh, so it was a lot more like the federal party at come election time they would pay the provincial party to run the campaign there uh, so really things were much more focused there and I was more focused there it was a little more local um, and I mean I got involved in Andy I was going to model parliaments uh, at Queen's Park and I mean this was you know the Ontario Young Liberals the Ontario Young New Democrats and the Young Conservatives duking it out at Queen's Park uh, and I mean, uh, you know, I did, I think, eight of those over the years. I even had some uh, final exams at, uh, in high school that I had to show up at school at 630 in the morning to take my exam early so that I could go to Malta Parliament afterwards. Uh, it was a lot of fun and doing that. And uh, the first federal thing I did was actually to go to uh, New Democratic Youth of Canada uh, convention out in Vancouver in uh, the summer of 2000. 
Uh, and I mean, for me, that was my first trip out West. Uh, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money, so there wasn't a lot of travel other than my dad and I kind of as a single dad, we'd go to Quebec every summer. Uh, and that was our opportunity also to practice our French because I went through the French school system here in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that was fantastic. Get out and go there. Uh, and I did a workshop on young people being candidates. And I kind of thought, I was like, you know what, this will be useful for me when I run maybe 20 years from now. Uh, but then that fall, uh, the Scarborough Southwest Riding Association was looking for a candidate. And they thought, you know what, why don't we give somebody new an opportunity? We know we have no hope in hell of winning. Uh, so let's actually give somebody some experience. You just um, said something that I need to clarify. <laughs> so did they tell you that you had no hope in hell? No, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't say that, but they themselves knew that. I mean, I've always been blessed that the Scarborough Southwest Riding Association has always been very realistic uh, about their prospects. And we've always been very good with our money and we've never overspent and ended up in bad debt situations. Uh, the lessons of 1993 and 95 were learned well. Uh, so yeah, it was like, let's give somebody an opportunity and let's go and have some fun with it. Uh, and they ended up coming and asking me if I'd be interested in being a candidate. And at the time I was 21, I was kind of floored. Uh, but I, I said, why not? I, you know, I'm not going to lose anything here. And, uh, you know, I don't have an expectation of winning, so it's not going to hurt that bad when, when we lose. Uh, and you know, we, we spent $20,000 in that campaign and we had lawn signs and we had a great time, did lots of canvassing. Uh, and back then also, um, 18 year olds were still in high school. Uh, and so we're 19 year olds. Uh, so we actually, I got to participate in six all candidates meetings. Three of them were in high schools. So me at 21. And of course the, the liberal incumbent was Tom Lapel. Uh, you know, everybody was more than twice my age. Uh, that was there. So I had a lot of fun in that campaign. Uh, it was a blast. And I mean, I got to my very first debate, which was actually a televised debate uh, with, uh, I think it was, I forget if it was Kojiko at that point, uh, because it was in Scarborough. It wasn't Rogers back then. And, uh, you know, we get to the debate and we're sitting on there, standing on these tiny little podiums. Uh, they come and give us a glass of water and there's nowhere to put it. So you had to put it between your feet. And there was cables all over the place. He had to stand there still and not knock it over. Um, and, you know, there's four campaigns, uh, us, the Canadian Alliance, the uh, progressive conservatives uh, and the liberals. And uh, the opening salvo from the incumbent MP was about how socialism doesn't work. And I'm looking at him going like, I'm finishing fourth and you're attacking me to start. OK, so then I start bringing up housing and I start bringing up other issues. And we end up spending most of the debate talking about the issues I wanted to. And I realized at that point, like, these guys aren't that much smarter than me. They're not that much more well-versed. And I mean, this is a, a member of parliament that's been there since 1988. He'd already been there for 12 years. And I'm able to run circles around him in the debate. So I was like, you know what? Maybe I can actually do this. Uh, and I got the benefit of getting to run against Tom Wopel three times. Uh, because I had fun, like I came back and ran in 2004, I ran in 2006, uh, and then uh, 2006, I mean, that was, we were supposed to go into an election early 2005, and that was when Belinda Stronach crossed the floor, and of course, so we ended up in a, you know, a year-long campaign at that point, and just as I'm coming out of that, uh, the one of the local city councillors in my riding uh, got an appointment to become Justice of the Peace, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, I had 
uh, three city councilors contacted me to ask me to run. And I'm like, I've just spent the last year in a campaign. So I'm saying no uh, to, to all these people. And then I meet all three of them at an event together and they tried to tie team and I still said no. Uh, and then the next morning at work, uh, I'm sitting there and I get a call and I pick up the phone and I hear, hi, it's Jack Layton. And I sat there waiting for the rest of the message. <laughs> and it wasn't a message. It was actually Jack calling me. And I went, oh, geez. Uh, and then Jack asked me to run. And at that point, I just couldn't say no. How can you uh, say no, no to Jack Layton, right? Exactly. Uh, and I mean, I knew at that point that I would have like a, a well-supported and, and resource campaign. And I did. I mean, it was the first time we had a campaign office, a uh, campaign manager. And I mean, uh, it was a great campaign, but there were 13 candidates running in it. Uh, I ended up finishing third out of the 13 uh, and liberals finished one, two, four and five. Wow. Uh, yeah, because at that time, again, it was a liberal stronghold. So it was uh, a number of liberals running. Uh, and at that point, Adrian Heaps uh, finished first. Uh, Michelle Berardinetti finished second. Uh, and of course, the subsequent campaign was when Michelle Berardinetti became the local city councillor when she beat Adrian Heaps uh, because of all the, the, the bad stuff that happened in the first campaign. Uh, I mean, it, it did get a little bit nasty out there. Um, so there's but, a know, lot I mean, to unpack here because I, oh, I, yeah. we, we, we have a lot to talk about right now because uh, let's go back to that first campaign in 2000. Yeah. You talk about, uh, you had signs. Um, I've talked to many politicians in my uh, time on the show and they all give me the same answer. It's odd to see your name on a campaign sign on people's lawns. How was it for you? I, I it was a little dreamy because I mean, again, I was not expecting this to happen for decades. Uh, and then all of a sudden, and I mean, these were those classic neon bright orange NDP signs. Uh, they were still the old school signs with the, the black lettering. And I'll tell you, we got our money's worth with those signs because we were still using them in 2011. Uh, and I mean, you know, when 2004 rolled around, uh, things had picked up for us because I mean, 2000, I finished with 10% of the vote. In 2004, suddenly we were almost 24%. Uh, so like in 2004, we ran out of signs early in the campaign and had to order more. Uh, and in the strange way of, uh, you know, strange world of economics of scale, we only needed 500 signs, but 1,000 signs was cheaper than 500. Uh, so we bought 1,000 and put 500 in storage. Uh, and we just went and used all the signs in the 04 and 06 campaign. And then suddenly 2011, uh, when things went obviously exceedingly well for us, we brought those other 500 signs out of storage. Wow. Uh, and I mean, you know, we, we made use in 2011 of, you know, signs from 2000, 2004, uh, and we supplemented them cause we didn't have enough big signs, uh, with big Jack Layton Toronto team signs. Uh, that we just stuck my little sign on top of. Uh, and uh, we had a lot, of, we, we did that because if we didn't, people would complain, well, Jack Layton's not running in my riding. Why do we have his signs? Yeah. Uh, and that's what they but, usually do, right? That's the leader's yeah. prerogative because when you brand yourself with such a popular person like Jack Layton, you need to promote that brand, right? So absolutely. But I'm, I'm, I'm also a very big believer in not putting the leader's name on your signs uh, because leaders come and go. Uh, at this point, like as a candidate, I've already run under three different leaders. Uh, and I was very mad in 2015 when uh, the port party forced the leader's name onto our signs uh, because I said, well, you know, 
we might end up having to junk those signs. Like I got four elections worth of sign usage out of signs uh, because we didn't have the leader's name on them. Uh, and then lo and behold, sure enough, 2015, you know, it was a, a bit of a disaster for everybody. And of course the leader was sacked a year later and it's like, Oh, great. Now we have to throw those signs away. Thank you very much. Because the one thing that happened was uh I remember in 2006, I think it was 2006, because Team Martin was all around Ontario. I don't don't remember the yep. team, uh, Leighton, because I wasn't in Ontario for that long, but it could have been, or Team Mulcair in 2015. Uh, but I remember Team Martin and the Liberals just, that was their brand, was, hey, we're Paul Martin. It was like, no, yep. you're the local candidate. Um, but getting back to that, those campaigns, yet again, name on the sign is one thing. Name on the ballot is another thing. Voting for yourself is the most I, the most weirdest thing I've ever had to do in my life is voting for yourself. How was it for yourself? Uh, the irony of that is that the very first time I actually got to vote for myself was in the 2015 election. Uh, because, you know, I was living at home with my dad throughout the, uh, the 2004, 06 and 11 campaigns. And so, you know, we were just a couple of blocks outside of the riding. We were right oh. next door. Uh, so, and I didn't know at the time that you could actually, if you were a candidate, you could go into your own riding and vote for yourself there rather than voting where you lived. I didn't know you could do that. Um, so, so I ended up voting for the local NDP candidate, uh, you know, which back then was Marilyn Shirley and then Matthew Kelway. Uh, so yeah, 2015 was actually the first time I got to do that. And it was my sixth time on the ballot. Uh, so by then it was it, it wasn't that big of a shock because I mean at that point I'd also been a member of parliament for four years so it's like four years of seeing my name and face going out on everything and it's uh, that is very different uh, but yeah I mean it's it still it still gives me goosebumps to think about it and uh, you know what an incredible experience that was uh, to get to be the member of parliament and the representative uh, for Scarborough Southwest and, and certainly something that I hope I get to do again someday which we're going to digest into a little bit here now. Uh, like you said, you ran in 2000, 2004, 2006, uh, 2005, you ran municipally. 2008, you took off. You decided not to run in 2008, correct? Yes. Uh, at that point, we also, in our riding, um, we'd had a, a large influx of diversity into our riding association. Uh, and of course, there's a very large Bangladeshi community in Scarborough Southwest. So we thought, you know what, let's try to, to actively, um, you know, accommodate and include that community. And there were some people that were interested in running. Uh, so, yeah. And, and at that point, like, I mean, I was an unemployed student. Uh, I was struggling financially and, you know, it was 2008, you know, a lot of people were out of work and it was kind of a, well, you know, I could go and, and work for minimum wage uh, at a temp job and, you know, be doing a job that's three times as hard as what I'm going to get paid for it. Um, that's actually what ended up getting me out into Alberta, uh, working in the oil sands in 2010, uh, because you could still actually make good money there. And well, uh, you can right now if you're in yeah. the in film industry or able to work from home. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So 
you decide in 2011 or how, how does it happen in 2011 that you decide I'm going to get back on the ballot? You know what? They don't have a candidate or how does it actually happen? Because that's sometimes it's being in the right place at the right time. Uh, because, uh, again, you know, the, in the old sense, like I was, I was on a layoff from work. Uh, through the winter, of course, sometimes, you know, a lot of people end up going home over the winter because, uh, you know, once all the buildings get built and then they're all wired and cabled up, uh, you know, there's not a lot to do for cable technicians and things through the, the very cold parts of the winter. So I was back home on a layoff. Uh, and I wanted to do it again, right? Cause I always loved doing it. And I knew, you know, uh, Jack, you know, we had a great campaign going, uh, but yeah, I, I had to sit and wait for my employer to give me a callback date. So I kept calling them every week being like, do you know when my call date's going to be? Do you know when my call date's going to be? Uh, I said, you know, like we have an election coming up and, uh, you know, I'd like to run, but obviously I can't if you're going to call me back to work. Uh, so when I finally got them pinned down that it was going to be after May 2nd and it was actually May 10th was my callback date. Uh, and so I was like, great, I can run. And, uh, you know, cause we didn't have a candidate at that point. There wasn't a lot of interest, uh, because we were down in the polls. Uh, so, I mean, I was like, great, I can do it. And of course we have my signs so we can do it on the cheap. We managed to run that campaign for about $15,000, but wow. we did a lot more, uh, in that campaign, uh, because it did explode. We had uh, a lot of interest. Uh, we had a ton of students involved in that campaign. Uh, I think we must have had about 150 kids do their community service hours uh, through our campaign. And so they were able to drop and leaflet the riding over and over again. Uh, and I mean, you know, I canvassed like crazy throughout all the campaigns. I mean, I developed tendonitis in both feet at the age of 24 uh, from campaigning. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the last three weeks of campaigns tend to be me on anti-inflammatories uh, just to keep my feet in shape enough to keep going uh, and changing, you know, shoes every single day uh, to keep them in, in good footwear. Um, but yeah, I mean, so by the time 2011 rolled around, uh, you know, Tom Wapel retired in 2008. So there was a new MP that wasn't terribly well known. Uh, and she went out of her way to try to make a point to not spend money on householders. Uh, and so she actually, yeah, uh, she actually didn't get herself very well known. And then here I am, who's been on the ballot five times before her. Uh, coming into the, you know, knocking on doors. So I'm going up to people's places being like, hey, I remember you from the last four campaigns. And there were people who thought I was the MP at that point because they're like, mine was the name they recognized. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that and then, of course, you know, the orange wave took off. And for us, it was always about putting ourselves in a place to get picked up by the wave, uh, you know, having a highly visible campaign to show that we're in the game. Uh, and it all worked out. Uh, so what know, was the moment? What was the moment for you that you realized? Because like you said, the NDP were in third place at the beginning of that campaign. I remember that campaign quite well. That, the NDP were in third place. And by the leaders debate, it had completely like evened out. And the NDP were potentially leading and forming government in about two weeks. For you, what no, was and, uh, Well, I mean, it, it was the reactions at the doorstep. 
suddenly everybody wanted to see you. Suddenly people are happy to see you. They're like, great, we're going to support you. We're coming out to vote. We're going to take a sign. Um, you know, normally those things take a little bit of cajoling here and there. Uh, of course, you, I mean, you have your diehard supporters all the time. Uh, but, you know, we'd had a little, a little bit of an experience with that in 2004 uh, when the campaign had taken off and, you know, People were thrilled to see us two weeks before the election. Uh, and then the strategic voting came in a week before and it all went away. Uh, this time it didn't go away. It just kept building and building and building. Uh, and, you know, we we're getting more people involved all the time. And, uh, you know, I mean, what elation to feel that. Uh, but we were still very much like, you know, we still finished third last time. And, you know, even though this is all going really well, our campaign still wasn't big enough to have a full e-day to go pull vote. Like, yes, we had our identified supporters and we could call them and go knock on their doors and remind them to go vote, but we didn't have scrutineers. Uh, we weren't checking the voters list all day long to make sure people had gotten out to vote. Um, but in that campaign, it didn't matter because people wanted to go out and vote for us. Um, I mean, we sent a bunch of volunteers to Beaches East York, Parkdale High Park, the other ridings that we were had much better chances of winning. Uh, and, you know, it just it all came together for us. It was uh, fantastic. Uh, and I was speaking to uh, a CBC pollster a few weeks after the election, uh, and he was telling me that their internal polling uh, that they do for their election tracking so that, you know, they know when to put that check mark up. Uh, they, he's told me that my riding was the very last riding in the country that flipped orange for them. Wow. Uh, so for so, yeah. you, seeing your name on CBC, CTV with that check mark. That didn't happen until about two thirty in the morning, by the way. But I'm assuming you were up the whole time because you were wondering oh. if you were going to be elected or not, or going back to Alberta. I I was at my third uh, election party by the time the check mark <laughs> came up, uh, because I mean we started at uh, a local bar in Scarborough Southwest. That's where the the main party happened for us. Uh, and then because things were going so well, we got a call to head downtown to the big party with Jack Layton. Uh, and I mean, we get down there, there's still not a check mark, but at that point it was pretty certain we were going to win. Um, so, and you know, we, we closed that party down, uh, and then ended up at a friend's place, uh, at an apartment, uh, you know, 30 in the morning who lived at, uh, Bay, Bay and, uh, Wellesley. Uh, and you know, I was seven or eight of us still there. And, you know, we finally saw that check mark come up and, all took photos of the, the TV and start screaming, just like, how is this? Like, oh, my God, this is really happening. Uh, I slept very well that night. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm assuming that phone call with your boss that, the day after saying, I'm not coming into work on the 10th is probably the yeah. easiest call you've had to make. Absolutely. And I mean, he because he he's he was interested in politics, too. So he had been following it a little bit. And I mean, he, he knew the call was coming. Uh, he was pretty happy for me. Um, that election was the last election of, uh, Mr. Jack Layton. A uh, few months after that election, everyone is sworn in and Mr. Jack Layton on July 25th announces that it's his cancer has returned and he's going into the uh, hospital and he does not come out for you. What did that mean? Uh, it's one of the most gut-wrenching experiences I've ever had in my life. Uh, you know, I mean, this is our leader, our team. We'd all come together. Uh, and, I mean, we we had this incredible new caucus filled with young people, too. Uh, you know, I mean, Jack was, uh, for 
for most of them, they, they knew Jack, but they didn't know Jack personally very well. Um, I had just spent the last, uh, you know, eight, nine years um, being very close to Jack. And, you know, we uh, would get together at Jack's place uh, from time to time uh, throughout the leadership. And even, even before that, like I'd, I'd been to Jack and Olivia's house a few times uh, when they were city councillors. Uh, for youth events because they were always so accommodating of uh, getting young people involved Uh, and that municipal campaign that Jack kind of cajoled me into even came and visited me on election day Um, so yeah I mean he was a he was a good friend and uh, a political mentor Uh, so both him and Peter Cormos uh, you know both my political mentors and they both passed away within a couple of years of my becoming an MP. So, uh, you know, you lose a lot of that advice you expect you're going to have. Uh, and it's and tough. They, and were, it still hurts. they were both such unique characters too. I remember watching Peter Comos in the Queens park and him without his tie on, just his, oh. his sleeves rolled up, just shooting down Mike Harris or Dalton McGinty. He didn't care who you were. Even, even Bob Ray, even Bob Ray. Stephen Bob Ray, do you remember that? No, that, that was that, that classic line of, do you want him pissing in or out of the circle? Um, but no, but, I mean, uh, it, it was great. And I, the, if, the, the Peter Cormo speech to watch uh, is actually the one that when the liberals uh, wanted to change the rules around uh, a dress code at Queen's Park. Um, Peter Cormos borrowed a Canadian-made tuxedo from Michael Prue came into the house wearing this tuxedo and every other member of the NDP caucus was wearing his drab blue shirt with his khaki pants. Uh, It just was quite a sight. And to hear him just go off and, you know, he didn't give an F what they did because there wasn't one thing that was going to stop him from fighting for people. And both him and Jack Layton were just like that. They were they were yeah. built from they were they cut from the same uh, slice because they were both unique people. And uh, politics is a uh, less bright because they were they were progressive populists. They certainly were. Um, getting back to that election, uh, so you're elected. You step on the House of Commons floor for the first time as an elected MP. How daunting is that? Because only a few people in Canada have ever had the chance to do that. And now you, someone who's been doing this for 11 years, finally gets the chance. How did that feel? Uh, it, it was a lot harder to do than model parliaments. <laughs> um, and I mean, that, that first speech that you give in the House, your maiden speech, I mean, I, I, there's not one person I know uh, that wasn't already coming from, say, a provincial legislature. Uh, there wasn't one person that I know that w- didn't shake in their boots. Uh, you know, you're just, you're so nervous and you're getting up there. And I mean, uh, my first speech, you know, most of us, uh, we got to have a member statement where, you know, let's make it easy where you thank your riding, you thank the people in your life that got you there. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with one minute of time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was just, I, I still think about that, uh, to this day, uh, still not my, my favorite speech that I gave in the house. Uh, but I mean, it, it was the first one and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll always be thankful for that, uh, opportunity. Before I ask you what your favorite speech was, I'm going to ask you, what did your father think of this moment? Because I'm assuming he was there watching you walk onto that floor. 
Um, he wasn't. Well, my dad's a teacher, so he was in class. Um, the, the very first day, the first time my father saw me live in person in the House of Commons was the very last day the house sat in 2015. Uh, and my private member's bill was the very last thing debated in the 41st Parliament, uh, and he was there for it. Um, it, it. All of that worked out because I was like, you know, we're not sure. Like, of course, we don't know if we're going to win. Of course, we want to win. Uh, but I wasn't going to let my dad miss that opportunity in case it never came around again. Uh, and my dad was retiring at the end of that school year. Um, so, you know, we were in the end of June and a couple days beforehand, I'd flown back to Toronto, uh, for the day for my dad's retirement, uh, celebration at his school. And I presented him with, uh, you know, first class train tickets. Cause my dad loves to train as much as I do, uh, to come back to Ottawa, to be there for my last speech, uh, in the house of commons. And I cleared it with his principal and all that beforehand. Uh, so, you know, I got to have them up there, uh, the very last day the house sat. Uh, so, I mean, that, that was very meaningful for me. Well, what was it? What did he say when you first got elected? Because I'm assuming fathers always have the best words. The moment something big happens in your life. My, my dad was in shock that night and he kept going up to people and just going like, my son's a member of parliament. Uh, he, no, I mean, my, my dad's been very proud of me and I mean, he's been incredibly supportive over the years and, uh, you know, he's the reason why I got to where I, uh, where I got, um, there's no doubt about it. And I mean, that kind of rolls into, uh, my, my favorite speech was, uh, I got to, uh, do an homage to my dad for father's day, uh, one year. And, uh, we got, we, we resorted a little trickery with the school, uh, and his principal, uh, they ended up holding an assembly and they live broadcasted it in front of the entire school. Um, and, you know, we, we called the Scarborough mirror to come out and uh, they got photos of my dad crying. And that's the front page of the Scarborough mirror that week. Um, and you I'm know, assuming dad, your father was not too happy with you after that moment. Uh, he was thrilled. He was touched. I mean, the whole thing. And, you know, for me to do that, um, but ironically enough, I think the thing he was most proud of was the fact that we got the political juice out of it by having the picture and the article in the paper, um, wow. because it was always so hard for us to get any attention whatsoever. Um, you know, I mean, in, in Toronto specifically members of parliament, uh, you know, you're, you're a small fish in a big ocean. Uh, whereas when you represent, you know, rural areas, you're the big fish in a small pond. Uh, so it's a very different experience. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say there's biases involved, but in Scarborough, where you'd had nothing but liberals for 20 years, there's liberals everywhere in all the social service agencies and all the groups and all the papers. Um, you know, Snap Scarborough is a great example. I remember being at an event once and uh, saying, well, you're going to take pictures. And they're like, well, we don't take pictures of political events. I'm like, I picked up their issue and showed them photos of a liberal nomination meeting in their paper. And I'm like, you're going to tell me that and look at this. Uh, so, you know, there are some biases around. And so for us to get that attention, that's the thing he was most happy with. Um that's but awesome. yes, and I, I got to have that front page framed and uh, there's one sitting in my house and there was one sitting in his house. Um, being an elected official can come with its challenges. 
uh, for you, what was the biggest challenge and what was the biggest misconception about being an MP? Because everyone has their vision of what an MP does. Oh, they sit in Ottawa and that's all they do. And they basically give speeches and then they come back and then they like go to a barbecue or two and that's it for their, their job. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of misconceptions about the job because I mean, I'd been around politics for a long time. So I, I knew a fair bit about the schedule. Um, I mean, just how uh, dysfunctional and how people are talking at each other and not with each other in Ottawa. Uh, I, I wasn't prepared for just how much of a disconnect there was there. Um, and, you know, I'd always heard and always, you know, learned that, you know, a lot of great work happens in committee because, you know, that's where you're away from the cameras and people work together better there. Um, but the Harper years really changed that. Um, and, you know, they, they completely changed the way that committees operate and it made it far more adversarial. Uh, so that was something I wasn't as prepared for. Um, and that was a bit of a misconception. Um, I also wasn't as prepared for the, you know, uh, the turf, the internal turf wars within your own political party uh, and how, you know, people that are supposed to really have your back don't. Um, so there was there there was that. Uh, obviously, I mean, one of the biggest challenges I faced was that uh, the BS order from the Board of Internal Economy uh, over the satellite issues, uh, satellite offices issue uh, where, you know, I mean, I. I wasn't a fan of the satellite offices because I wasn't in downtown Toronto. So I was like, you know, the staffs can end up working for those guys rather than, you know, doing stuff for us out in Scarborough. Yeah. Um, but it was still like, we, we always had problems coordinating things. You know, we'd end up having like two or three MPs show up to one event and then there's two other events going on in the city that have no MPs. Uh, so for us, it was, you know, just the, to be able to have somebody that was working for all of us, uh, they could schedule things uh, and, you know, help make sure we were covering all the bases. That was kind of really good for us. Um, but yeah, to then end up having this order to repay $141,000 and them coming and telling me that the staff person who'd worked in my constituency office for three and a half years and to say, well, you now owe that money back. I was like, that's insane. Um, how did you come up with that math? And of course, Nobody ever showed up with any proof that we'd misused any money or uh, with anything. It was just a blanket order to repay this money. Uh, and then, of course, that was also where I really did not at all feel supported uh, by the political party because it was kind of like they're telling us they're going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and then I'm waiting for X, Y, and Z to happen and nothing's happening. And then I'm going to them and saying, you know, I need to talk to you about this and I need to meet with you about this and, you know, let's deal with this because – the satellite offices for nearly everybody was a Quebec issue um, because it was really focused around, you know, we had elected 58 MPs in Quebec and there was a satellite office of staff that were working for all of the MPs doing, you know, graphic design and uh, media relations and stuff like that, helping to coordinate all of those offices and those new MPs. It was really great work and it was actually, you know, and it wasn't at the time against the rules. Um, you know, the, the Board of Internal Economy changed the rules in 2014 to make it against the rules and then applied it retroactively. So who was the uh, chair at that time? Sorry, what was the... Who, who was the chair of the... Uh, the chair of the caucus? Um, I mean, we went through a few of them. Uh, Glenn Tebow was the, the... Glenn Tebow was the chair. And then... Um, oh, so I'm he, forgetting who was chair then. Um, 
but it was that the board of internal economy stuff was more around the house leader's office uh, and the whip's office and the leader's office. Um, but it was kind of like nobody wanted to talk or, or listen to me. You know, I'm not big enough as an MP and nobody wanted to listen to what I had to say and to listen to the strategy that I had uh, to deal with this issue. Um, and again, because it was all happening in Quebec, um, I was the only MP outside of Quebec that had a big order to repay money. Uh, so I knew I was going to be the focus on the target within Ontario uh, to try to make us all look bad, right? Because this was all a strategy by the Liberals and Conservatives to try to drag us into the mud and to make us look, you know, as corrupt as people view all politicians, right? Because then it's just like, oh, well, they're all the same. You know, nobody stands apart. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, nothing happened throughout the campaign. I did get hit with it uh, in campaign literature uh, and it could, would come up at the doorstep and all that. And of course I couldn't do anything to deal with it until after the campaign was over. And, you know, I mean, we're six years later now and I'm the only MP that doesn't still, or the only former MP that doesn't still have a bill sitting over their head um, because I knew what to do to get rid of it. And I dealt with it myself uh, directly through the House of Commons, not through the politicians, but through the actual staff of the House of Commons uh, and the CFO of the House of Commons. Uh, and I got exonerated because the whole thing was was BS. Um, you know, and once I was able to prove that this person worked in my office for this period of time doing this work, uh, it all went away. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that the complete bills would have gone away for all the other MPs. But, you know, you still hear that number of $2.7 million that gets thrown around every so often somebody wants to make a bit of hay with it. Uh, you know, and I mean, the there's already been $600,000 between myself and a few other people that's been taken away from that bill because it was found to be faulty. Uh, and, uh, you know, a bunch of it got paid back by MPs. Uh, I mean, all those former MPs, everybody that lost in 2015 that had a bill, uh, was not able to get any of their moving expenses covered, was not able to get uh, any job retraining done. You know, the MPs have access to a $15,000 fund in the year after their MPs to transition back into normal life. Uh, not one of our MPs ended up having access to that because it was all withheld. Uh, so, I mean, that's just, that's just soured the experience for a lot of people. Uh, and I mean, to end up even all, you know, you've lost and now you've also got to pay for your moving expenses, unlike every other MP in the history of the country yeah. um, because of these faulty orders. And, you know, the court cases, which we kind of lost, you know, it's funny, it had nothing to do with the merits of the case, but whether or not the courts even had jurisdiction, uh, because this is the separation of powers, right? Yeah. Uh, so the courts basically decided, like, I mean, even if everything you're saying is true and nothing should happen, we don't have jurisdiction. It's only the Board of Internal Economy that can deal with that. And they haven't wanted to because they want this to be hanging over our heads forever. That 2015 election, um, the NDP at the beginning of that election were in second place. They were not doing that bad. Um, you have a new leader, a leader that is not well known outside of Quebec because uh uh, he might have been doing uh, amazing work as in question period, but outside of Quebec, he was not well known as Mr. Donald Mulcair. From your perspective, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, and I'm going to ask this question. I've asked it to a few other your colleagues, but I'll ask it to you as well. What happened? 
what happened in that 2015 campaign? Because honestly, it looked like you guys were heading to government. Uh, history repeating itself is what happened there. And th this is to me, what is the most infuriating thing? Um, the 2014 election in Ontario, uh, when you had Kathleen Wynne sort of run, try to run to the left of the NDP to try to out progressive the NDP. Um, it was the exact same strategy and all of us in Toronto, like we saw it happen in 2014 provincially and we saw that it was going to happen again federally. Uh, so we actually sat down with the, with the leadership, uh, with the national director, director of organizing and others, uh, in the summer of 2014 and read them the riot act. And we told them if you guys don't start being bold and come out with big progressive policies, because the thing was the liberals federally were down. Right. Um, you know, we we have to take all the oxygen up. We cannot leave a window or a door cracked for them to walk through. Um, you know, we needed big, big vision and policies. We needed to cover all the progressive bases. We needed to not let that happen again. And they let that happen again. Uh, Tom Mulcair said no to taxing the rich. So what did Justin Trudeau say? I'm going to tax the rich. Uh, you know, I'm going to bring in this middle class tax cut. Um, you know, I'm going to run deficits, which was yeah, a huge. Yeah. And now, the deficit question that one's one that one's tougher to answer because the NDP has a perception of being bad with money, right? We're we're not good for the economy. That's the perception that exists. So we have to work much harder uh, to not fall into that trap of you know the tax and spend trap uh than the liberals do uh and certainly than the conservatives do um so you know it's it's always iffy whether or not we could have said we're going to run deficits and it, the same thing might have happened um but you know we should have been saying we're going to tax the rich we should have been saying we're going to help students we should have been out saying you know that we're going to do all these great and wonderful things we had child care but like pharmacare like the pharmacare plan didn't get released until two or three weeks before e-day you know we were already sunk by then um you know and like childcare, like the, that was a direct response, by the way, to those Toronto MPs reading the Ride Act to the leadership in 2014. That's why that policy came out in the fall of 2014. And that was also to allow people to get used to the idea, $15 a day childcare, my God. I mean, I'm in Quebec, living in Quebec right now with two kids and it, a large part of it is because of affordable childcare. Um, you know, we're paying $45 a week per child for childcare in Toronto. My friends are paying $2,000 a month. You know, it's insane. People can't afford that. So, you know, you have people staying home, uh, instead of going out and working and making a salary and, and, you know, improving their lives, uh, in order to take care of their kids. And, you know, it's, it's untenable and it's not sustainable. Uh, you know, and I have to say with Quebec, I mean, you know, Quebec went from having the lowest participation of women in the workforce in Canada to having the highest uh, because we, of their affordable childcare system. Is it perfect? No. Does it need improvements? Of course it does. Um, but you know what? The federal government getting involved and in, you know putting a bunch of money into that uh, would make Quebec system better too. Uh, and I mean, you know, so we had that policy and we had a couple of other great things, but you know, I, I ended my term uh, as MP as the uh, critic for post-secondary education. And I could not get 
any attention to post-secondary issues or anything. You know, I had a plan to save every student in Canada $1,000 a month or sorry, $1,000 a year. It's not perfect. It's not the end of student loans. It's not the end of everything else, but it's what I saw was achievable yeah. uh, without it kind of carrying a really big price tag. Um, you know, during one of our meetings, our strategy meetings um, between the leadership in the Toronto caucus in the spring of 2015, uh, one of them actually had, <laughs> one of them asked us, they said, we need you guys to come up with a policy or an idea that's not going to cost any money. I was like, really? Okay. Um, and I came up with one. I said, you know what? Like our affordable childcare plan, you know, $15 a day childcare. Um, the city of Toronto spends tens of millions of dollars a year on subsidizing childcare. How much money is our childcare plan going to save the city of Toronto? If we can say we're going to save the city of Toronto $300 million a year that you can put into housing or you can put into whatever your priorities are, because we do believe in an asymmetrical federalism. Uh, and I mean, sometimes that makes me crazy because I still hate the Scarborough subway, but that's Toronto's decision to make. Yep. Right. Like I, and I will personally advocate against it and for the LRT and all the other things uh, that make sense financially and for getting people from point A to point B. Uh, but it's the city's decision to make. Uh, and, the, you know, the feds should provide the money for it. So, yeah, I said, you know, we need to find out how much money the city is going to save on that crickets from the folks at the other end. It's like, I actually found you a policy that's not going to cost any money that we can run on. And you're not going to put in the work to, to actually make it happen. Um, you know, and, and I experienced this as an MP uh, multiple times. Uh, when uh, in 2013, uh, or the end of 2012, 2013, when the ice storm happened in Toronto. Uh, you know, and I mean, that was devastating for people. And I mean, folks in Scarborough, like a week later, a bunch of people still had no power. Um, and when we got together and met, I said, you know what? We need to create a fund. And we need to have uh, changed the federal building code to say that, you know, any federally regulated residential buildings need to have at least 24 hours of generator support for elevators to get people in and out of buildings. Should this kind of thing happen again? And, you know, we should have a fund to let municipalities and provinces, you know, retrofit buildings, especially community housing buildings, so that people can get in and out of their places for at least 24 hours after a disaster uh, so that, you know, we don't lose any lives. Um, and again, you know, like I said, brought this up, it was completely ignored and nobody, you know, nobody gave a damn. Three months later, when Olivia Chow is running, you know, launching her mayoralty campaign and she's pitching basically the same policy, I was like, my God, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, you know, and I'm not the only young MP to have this problem. Uh, and particularly, we had 22, uh, we elected 22 MPs under the age of 35. Uh, 17 out of the 22 were women. And I'll tell you, they had a lot of problems getting their voices through uh, to some of the older, more wiser uh, folks who, you know, thought they knew best. Um, so since that election... What have you been doing? How's life been since that election? Do you miss it? Uh, I absolutely do miss it, um, but I'm still very much connected to it because my my partner works for the NDP House Leader. Uh, she's also a former member of Parliament, uh, Alexandrine Latendresse, who chose not to run for re-election in 2015. 
Um, at the time, she decided it, it like that job wasn't for her. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we moved uh, to Quebec. We started a family. Uh, and then she got a job in the house leader's office. So, I mean, we're living in Gatineau at the moment. And, uh, you know, she's she's working incredibly hard uh, all the time. And, of course, because she works for the house leader whenever the house of commons is sitting i mean it's it's crazy work days that i'm familiar with uh so like i've i'm actually a stay-at-home parent now and i mean i've been raising my kids for the last four years and it's what an experience it's fantastic at times it makes me crazy because going from that to this is very different and then you know at, after four years when we finally got the kids into full-time daycare I was like, oh, I'm ready to do something else and have some time to myself and do adult things. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> um, like literally, uh, my our, our son is 22 months old now. Um, my partner's first day back on the job after the maternity leave was day one of the lockdown last March. March 13th. Uh, so, yeah. So the day that I'm supposed to kind of get my life back... <laughs> Suddenly I'm like, well, I'm somehow I'm dealing with the kids even more than I was before. Uh, and I mean, you enjoy it though, right? I love it. I love it. I mean, I, my first job was working in a daycare, uh, from the age of 15 to 19, I, uh, worked in childcare and I mean, what a, a valuable experience that was. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of the most satisfying things you can do. I mean, there's not that many things in life that are more satisfying than, you know, teaching a kid to write their name, to tie their shoe. Uh, you know, our, our son this week just started figuring out left and right. And, you know, he already knows his colors and it's just, wow. it's, it's wondrous, uh, you know, in the experience and, you know, we named my daughter after my grandmother and, uh, you know, it's tough at times. And of course, you know, I want to be doing other things as well. Uh, but you know, 20 years from now, the fact that I was home doing this now instead of working, like, I mean, you know, these are the memories I'll cherish the rest of my life. Right. Uh, but now of course I've been out of the job market for five years. So now it's a little tougher to get back in. Uh, I'm, I'm facing the same experience that, you know, women for all of eternity have faced, uh, which is, you know, I've borne the brunt of the childcare duties and, you know, I've taken a step back in my career to raise a family. And now how do I get back into it? Uh, so that's where the challenge lies now. And I've been doing some courses and I'm learning new skills and, uh, you know, that's a lot of fun too. My last question before we wrap up here, if you had one suggestion or one, uh, piece of advice for someone looking to get into the field of politics, what would it be? Get involved. I mean, that's, that's really like you, you have to jump in uh, with both feet and uh, you know, talk to people, uh, find out what uh, you know, and, but like, if you're, are you, are you talking about getting involved in politics or actually like running? Either or, uh, however you okay. want to, however you want to address the question. Because there's lots of people that want to be involved in things, but don't want to be the the face in front, right? Uh, if you're somebody who wants to run for political office, uh, yeah, you have to get involved, whether it's in your local community group, municipally, or a political party, provincially or federally. Get involved in your local electoral district and your riding association, um, and be able to answer this one question: Why do you want to run? Number one question you have to answer. Uh, if you're somebody who wants to be uh, in, in behind, I mean, 
Next time you see somebody with a, a button for the party you want, go and talk to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, go and have a conversation and, and go and meet some people and, you know, find out if it's in fact what you want to do. Uh, because people do have a lot of perceptions about what politics is. And, you know, it's not, it's not always going to live up to the hype or it's going to be different than the hype. Uh, but you got to try it out. Uh, you got to get involved and, uh, and test it out and try it. Um, otherwise you'll never know. Awesome. Dan, I want to thank you so much for this. This has been enlightening and you are a true gem when it comes to talking. I, I was expecting that I'd have to ask so many questions because so many politicians that I've talked to in the last few months, I, I've had to like ask so many follow-up questions, but you are such an open book and I'm, it's such refreshing to hear that. Thank you very much. Uh, that's great to hear. And I mean, uh, yeah, I'm an open book and there's still a lot of things I haven't talked about and won't talk about. Uh, but I mean, that's politics. And sometimes you got to save some stories for a later day when they're going to have a bigger impact. Uh, but it was great talking to you again. And of course, I mean, you know, we first met uh, on some guy named Aaron O'Toole's first campaign. I don't know who you're talking about. The guy who I never, I wish with all my heart to never be prime minister of Canada, but <sighs> no comment. I, it could happen. It might not. Uh, you I, know, I'm so hoping for the latter. Happen. That's true. Uh, but, you know, I mean, for, for myself as a new Democrat, of course, uh, you know, where we don't have a great affinity for conservatives to begin with, but there's often a mutual respect that we stand for something. You stand for something. We hate what you stand for, but you stand for something and a mutual loathing of the liberals for really not standing for anything. Um, but I mean, obviously politically, I mean, we're hoping that uh, the conservatives go far enough down in the polls that nobody's scared of them because then people will go out and vote NDP in droves and we can get rid of this ridiculous strategic voting argument. Um, because, I mean, it, it hurts a lot more than it helps. Uh, okay. Because, I mean, it, you end up with a lot of MPs that have no business being there, uh, that just happen to be running for the right color, uh, that aren't in it for the right reasons. Have you been uh, to Alberta? It takes space. <laughs> you must have been uh, to, Alberta. to Alberta. <laughs> but you know what? Like, it, it was Scarborough in the 1990s and the 2000s as well. Uh, you know, I mean, like it, Jim Corrigianis, like, oh, uh, you know, and I mean, Tom Wapel. I mean, I have a lot of more respect for Tom Wapel than I did when I first when ran. Running it. Um, but like, and, you know, I, I with Tom Wapel, I figured out what he does during campaigns. The guy would give the same speech at each meeting. So I would just sit at the first meeting taking notes and then I'd have all the responses and all the things to pick his arguments apart ready for the next meeting. And then he just wouldn't know what to do at that point. Because if I got to speak first, I'd already have countered every argument he was about to say. So then he'd give a speech and be like, as Dan was saying, as Dan was said, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, well, Dan, I don't want to take up much more of your time. I told you an hour here. We're at the hour mark. So thank you Excellent. so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, follow Dan on Twitter. Uh, he is hilarious sometimes. I'm prolific and, and uh, he is on the Twitch and gaming. There you go. <laughs> 
Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Whoa!